0: Welcome to the Lila Joe Show. I'm Lila. I'm an Olympian ice dancer and psychology student. I'm also really curious about people and the fascinating stories that we all have to tell. Thank you so much for being here. And today, please welcome my guest to share their story. Today's storyteller is Pita Tafatufua. You may remember Pita from the Rio 2016 Olympic opening ceremony when he marched topless and coconut oiled as Tonga's flag bearer. He went viral. Pita's road to Rio was 20 years in the making, including three failed qualification attempts, numerous injuries and months unable to walk, and some of his darkest inner battles. Pita persevered and was finally named an Olympian in Taekwondo in 2016. You think he stopped there? Definitely not. Pita wanted to become the first summer winter Olympian from Tonga, so he picked up a completely new sport, cross-country skiing, and qualified for Pyeongchang in under a year. Pita tells this story in our conversation, and I won't even begin to describe it, because there are so many twists and turns, and it is just riveting. After that, Pita had a new goal, to compete in a third consecutive Olympics in another new sport, sprint kayaking. Because why not? What I admire so much about PETA is that he has used his platform for the highest good, breaking boundaries, pushing his own mental and physical limits, and inspiring others to achieve their impossible. PETA's profound faith and enthusiasm for life and the pursuit of his goals are just contagious. You are going to leave this episode with the biggest smile on your face and with such a drive to go after what you previously thought you could not. So today, please welcome to The Lila Joe Show, Pita Taufatufua. Pita, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor. I've been looking forward to this, looking forward to it all week. I'm a little bit nervous as well because I haven't been on your show before.
0: I know. No need to be nervous, though, because my interviews are structured like workouts. So we start off with a warm-up, then we move on into a longer period of high-intensity questioning and then we wrap it up with a cool down and you are a professional olympian so i think i think you'll thrive ah
1: thank you i um i look forward to it i the high intensity workout part i you know it's always a part of training where we we get a little bit scared for but uh that's what we have coaches for right
0: exactly exactly so let's start off with the warm up some quick fire questions to get the blood pumping who makes you laugh the hardest <laughs>
1: This is going to sound, this is going to sound strange, but it's myself.
0: <laughs> I knew you were going to say that.
1: <laughs> it, it, it sounds, it sounds funny because it's like, why, you know, what is it that you're telling yourself that makes you laugh? And it's pretty much not a whole lot, but yeah, so myself.
0: Yourself, love it. <laughs> right now, would you rather be in the mountains or on a beach?
1: On a beach, but I love the mountains as well. So but on a beach, quick fire.
0: Yeah. What is your current favorite hobby?
1: building things. So I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer from university and I enjoy, I enjoy just building things. I've got a couple of old cars that I'm trying to bring life back into. I like seeing things come from old and derelict and broken and going to waste and then trying to put life back into them. And uh, that's what I do with, with cars. It's kind of like an art form for me.
0: Wow. I love that. And how is a morning best spent in Tonga?
1: I think the best way to spend the morning in Tonga is to wake up and walk because there's so many sounds of nature. You can hear the birds. It's just so alive early morning and, and just so beautiful. And I think that brings a lot of energy to, to kick off the day. Mm.
0: Nothing like starting the day in nature. I agree. And then last question of the warm-up. What is life's simplest pleasure?
1: That, that's such a... <laughs> There's so much depth to that question, right? Life Life's simplest pleasure to me would have to be somewhere between family and and nature, just being around family and regrounding. And then from there everything else, uh, everything else flows. Mm,
0: agreed, agreed. So are you warm, Peter? Are you ready to work out?
1: <laughs> I'm sweating already. You've me too. We're in before. it together. We're
0: in it together. Okay, so you just said it perfectly about the value of family, and you said that the greatest gift that you were given growing up in Tonga was family. If there was a photo of you and your siblings to best encapsulate your childhood, what would it be?
1: I think most, it'd probably be a lack of photos, that we were so busy being kids, and we couldn't really afford cameras back, you know, Back in those days, not everyone had, uh, had a telephone. So I think it's probably just not even having photos. You know, we were living so much that we were actually out there living. We didn't have time to stop and, and, and get the selfie of it, but not that we could anyway. <laughs>
0: That's such a great answer. I, re- I haven't heard that one before. I love it. And you are one of seven children and grew up in a one-bedroom house with little electricity and no hot water. And while you didn't have a lot, you certainly appreciated everything that you did have. So, how did growing up in Tonga teach you gratefulness?
1: When you grow up with nothing from a material perspective, you get so much joy just from the smallest, getting the smallest material thing. So, you know, we would try to make absolutely everything last. So, a broken pen. I remember as a kid, I'd back then we had the little whiteout where you can shake it and there's a little metal ball so I'd have a little whiteout and then I'd take out the little metal ball inside the whiteout and I'd hit it down and I'd turn that into a uh, into a fishing sinker you know we we try to make everything kind of last and have a have a second purpose and I guess growing up on a farm as well that was one of the things that you do is you problem solve and when you don't have all the tools, you've got to make tools, when you don't have creature comforts. I I remember our, our car that we had for many years. It was this big old van. And it got, when I say we wore it into the ground, we literally wore it into the ground. Our feet, when I'm sitting in the front passenger seat, my feet were, the floor pan had rusted out so much that my feet were now hanging next to the gearbox. And that was right throughout the car. So that kind of shows that, we we had no choice, right? We couldn't just go and buy another car. So we'd make everything last. And so as soon as I, I kind of moved into the life of where I'm at now and and access the things, access to food, you know, my what I considered wealthy. When I was a kid, I said, I'm going to be rich when I can buy whatever food that I want at any time that I want that food. That, that to me was financial wealth not wealth, but that was financial wealth. It wasn't about a car or a house or any of that. It was about when can I, if I want to eat the lobster, when can I, can I do that without, without breaking a sweat? It was just about food. So we grew up with a lot of gratitude and it came from actually having, uh, having nothing.
0: And your mom taught you and your siblings that you could achieve absolutely anything. How did she embody this lesson in the way that she lived her life.
1: Yeah, that was that was the greatest gift that I have received from my mother, was the the belief that we could achieve anything that we set our mind to, and and so she was she was raising six kids. Uh, there were seven of us, but my sister passed away. She was raising six kids with no income, and then you know she put herself to sell through university and did a PhD at like, at like 55, it's all relative. When, when someone achieves something, I look at what they're going through at that, exa- at that time in their life. And then if they're a single person with a lot of money and, and, and no stress, it's probably a little bit easier to achieve certain things. You're raising six kids at the time with um, you know, no financial assets and just a struggle and putting yourself through university and then you become, you know, then she became a a doctor, you know, not easy. So I I take my hat off to her and I know what she went through to, uh, to be able to give us the life that we, that we deserve. Right. That was, there was never a case with her of you can't achieve it. And I think that's something that I really want to get across and help youth with is maybe some of them didn't have the mother who believed in them. So that's a gift I'd like to share with people because that was, that was given to me. And I think I, I honestly believe that I have the wealthiest upbringing just because of my family and, and, and my parents.
0: And your dad is also an amazing man. And he, you said that he <laughs> taught you humility and that he stopped you from becoming Icarus flying too close to the sun. How did he do that?
1: He, he does it every day. He does. He does. He's, still, he's still to this day. Icarus, Icarus's wings got a little bit bigger when he walked at that first Olympics in 2016. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, my father had to, well, actually, my family does that. They ground me. And For my father, we were never, they never used the words, you are a pretty child, you are a handsome child, you are a beautiful child. They used the words, you are a good person. And if, if for whatever reason they mixed in beauty, right, uh, a, a, a genetic lottery item, right, it, it's not something that anyone can control in any way. It would be done in in a in a humorous way. So we grew up. It wasn't wasn't that anyone believed that they were ugly or pretty. It just wasn't even a thing. It it, it didn't factor into our into our mindset. Our father taught us that. Your value is based on how you help other people, what you do for your family, what you do for people who aren't given the same strength that you're given. I've been blessed with strength. I'm not going to, I can't deny this, right? I've been blessed with mental strength, physical strength, but what's it all for, right? And My father said, it's humility is about what you do with what you have to help others. And that's where your value lies.
0: And this lesson, it's something that you really stayed true to early on because you worked with homeless kids for 15 years at Brisbane Youth Service who inspired you in your darkest days. So how did these kids shape your vision for what was possible for you in your life?
1: It's quite funny because I landed in youth work. I was never going to be a youth worker. I was a mechanical engineer at university. The good Lord or the universe or however you view it, in his infinite wisdom, said that you need to go and learn a bit more about, about people. And he threw me this, he, he threw me into youth work. It wasn't a choice. It was, it was an element of the universe will give you the lesson that you're missing. I ended up working in, in youth work and I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just do this for a little bit of time. You know, a few weeks, make a paycheck, right? And it turns out a few weeks, wasn't enough for me to learn the lesson that I needed to learn. Mind you, I was, I was 17 when I started. I, I just, you can, you can no longer do this at 17. You have to be 23 with a degree. But at that time, they had no one. No one could last more than three weeks. So All the youth workers were just leaving. The kids would assault them. Um, there'd be police being called, ambulance being called almost every shift just because of the, the complex dynamic of what was going on. And I I ended up leaving 15 years later, right? Like that's how long it took me to get the lesson. And the only reason I left was after the Olympics, I kind of looked up and I said, you know what? I get it. I understand what you were trying to teach me. And I'm going to take whatever I've learned from these kids, which was a lot. Oh, where do I even begin? I'm going to take these lessons and I'm going to try and magnify that, what they taught me you know how do you even break it down the, the things that i learned from these kids like i to give an example and you know it might sound a little bit dark but there was a, there was a young person and there are many examples of this over 15 years imagine being a young a young girl who's a baby and being i know this is a joyous podcast but imagine being a baby prostituted out to men while your mother is a heroin addict and Injecting heroin into the baby at the same time. And then that baby then grows up, um, ends up going through all sorts of things that no person should ever go through, you know, all kinds of attacks and, and different things. She then ends up at our homeless shelter at the age of uh, 15. And there's th- just this massive amount of trauma there. And it's like, what do you, you know, how do you help this person? How do you help someone? How do you help someone like that who has so much pain and so much anger? She was carrying so much anger as well. And that represented, I worked a thousand uh, youth like this over that period of time. You know, what do you do? And over that time, I learned many things to, to help them. I thought I was I was there to help them. Turns out that the lessons I learned from them helped me to be the person that you know I am now as well. So it was uh, reciprocal in terms of um, how we were helping each other.
0: And how did you, with, with that girl, for example, what did help? What was that moment where you realized, okay, we're making change, there's, there's hope, there's light at the end of the tunnel in some capacity?
1: Uh, the, the, so the first thing I needed to do was, so she had a negative association with men just because of what happened to her as she was growing up. And it was difficult because I was a male uh, youth worker at the time. And my mindset was, you know, I'd read her report, I'd kind of seen her behaviors. And it's very hard to discuss and try and help them when they're not open to discussing. So our first thing was always build rapport. And it took me six months. And all I did, so she stayed in the homeless shelter for about a year and a half was I said, I'm just going to exist around her. And and there were, uh, there's four youth in that homeless shelter and a youth worker. I'm just going to exist. And I'm just going to show her that I can exist and I can do my work and I can help the other youth and I'll be there if she needs to discuss or needs help with anything. And, And it'll be a safe environment for her. And that's all I did. And then slowly over time, she would come in and she'd slowly drop the things that were going on in her life. And, and then I was able to, you know, to help her in, in this way. Came to her heads, I think that's how they say it. 3 a.m. in the morning, one night, I'm, I'm at work and I get a call from the police and, and warning to anyone who's listening. But I get a call from the police. She's holding, she's standing at the bridge, holding onto the, holding onto the rail. Do I, you know, do I jump? Do I do I not jump? And then, and then she, uh, she wanted to talk to me. So I, I picked up the phone. And it's 3 a.m. in the morning, right? How are you feeling at that time in the morning where you, can't, you cannot make one mistake? No. You have to be, you know, you're, you're still there wiping the sleep out of your face and you've got all of a sudden, hi, Peter, this is Constable, uh, whoever I'm here with, young person. They're holding onto a bridge, they want to talk to you. They won't talk to our to our negotiators, you know, to so I get on the phone. <laughs> Let's call her Rachel. That's that's obviously not her real name. So Rachel is holding onto the bridge, and and it's about changing energy. When you're talking to someone, they have an energy. So you have an energy and I have an energy. And if you're in a negative energy, for, the only way for me to influence your negative energy is. I'm either going to be sucked into your negative energy and then I become you, or I'm, I've got to have enough positive energy and enough of my own energy that whoever has the strongest energy will pull the other. So I'm like, okay, I'm in this space. It's go time. So I said, Rachel, what's going on? And she goes, Peter, I can't believe no one believes me. My uncle did this, my, you know, the, the, the teacher did that. And, I said Rachel I completely understand and you know what if I went through the things that you went through I would probably be exactly where you are right now and she's like it's so unfair no one's listening and I said Rachel your options are always open to you I'm not going to take away any of your options because in my head I knew that her options had been taken away from her in, in life. People had taken her ability to, to make her own choices. They had taken something from her. I said, Rachel, you're the captain of your ship, and I understand where you are right now. And I'm slowly dropping the energy because she's heightened. I have to slowly drop the energy, calm her heart down, talk a little bit slower. Right. And then I said, The option is always open to you. And I'm I'm not going to tell you if it's the, the worst option or the best option because it's your option but what I will ask you right now is I'm just getting in the car I'm gonna head across there I'm heading across there now and let's go get some pancakes let's go get some coffee I know a place that's open at 3 a.m in the morning we'll go get some pancakes and some coffee and and let's talk about all this stuff that's happened to you and you know I want to hear more about it and and I I'm not going to pretend that I completely understand what you're going through, but I just want to hear more about it. And I just spoke to her the whole time and I I shouldn't have been on the phone, right? You're not meant to be on the phone while you're driving, but it's it's more important things in life when it, when it comes to someone in that position. So I went and I, and the police let me through the barricade and I went and I spoke to her. And as I walk up to her, I'm, I'm giving her the world's biggest smile, knowing very well that, you know, things could go one way or another. Hey, Rachel, I, I see it's a little bit tough at the moment. Let's go grab those pancakes. I'm, I'm thinking strawberry pancakes. We'll get some Nutella. We'll get some bananas. And then I just, with my hand, I just told the police just to move, move back just to give us um, some space because there's already a, a negative correlation between her and authority figures. And I reached out and I helped her, off the, uh, helped her off the bridge and we went and got pancakes. She went off and ended up working in a youth shelter over in Laos. Getting messages from her that she had never been in a place where she felt safe her whole life. So, when I look at a lot of problems that people are going through now, I always ask myself, firstly, are they safe? Do they feel safe in the environment that they're in? And then we go into the other work.
0: Mm. Wow, what a story. Thank you for sharing that, PETA. There's so many, so many lessons in there. And just knowing that you are the captain of your ship, I think that's a beautiful lesson and, and it applies to every single human listening. And then also just the value of wanting to be understood and listened to and to feel safe. Those are human needs. Those are human needs.
1: A hundred and, percent. And it's it's certainly magnified when those things have been taken away from a young age
0: you're listening to the lila joe show we have to talk about the olympic road so the olympic dream was born after the atlanta olympics in 1996 when tonga welcomed home their first athlete to win an olympic medal a silver in boxing by pia wolfgram and you and your classmates lined the streets to welcome him and you had the sign for the letter p for pia and as he drove past, he waved. And in that moment, you knew that you would be an Olympian. So from that moment, as you left the parade, what was different within you?
1: A seed had been planted and I was unable to shake this, this seed. I, I, I felt like I was a little bit of barren soil. I, I wasn't ready for this, for this seed. And and I wasn't ready because I wasn't an athlete. I thought I was an athlete, but I was, I literally was the smallest kid in my grade. And I don't say that, you know, figuratively speaking, I say it because we actually stood next to each other in Tonga. We knew our, our pecking order, our hierarchy of who the bully was. He was always the biggest. Then there was a the little, the group who would challenge, challenge the bully. I wasn't even close, right? I was physically small and, and I knew exactly. Exactly where I was, but something inside me, something inside me, it, it changed, and I just couldn't shake it. I, I not that I wanted to shake it, but it just stuck with me. It was you are one day going to be an Olympian. That's going to be you one day. I, you know, whilst we're looking at by a wolfgram, that's going to be you one day. And yeah, throughout my whole life, it just stuck with me it was it was pulling me towards it to become an Olympian and oh the, the <laughs> it was no easy path i tell you this because I, remember at this time i'm over in tonga i'm over in in this little pacific island and back then the only way we could watch by a wolfgram was we would stand we would there was one tv in our village and we'd stand outside on the outside the windows all the kids would stand around like this with their heads sticking through the window, watching, you know, watching the TV. So we were so far removed from the Olympics that the dream was even, it was, uh, it was just next to impossible.
0: Mm. But that's what you love. You love things that are next to impossible.
1: I, I, I do now, at that time I didn't realize Maybe that. Maybe
0: not at the time.
1: <laughs> at, at that time I didn't realize that you still survive when, you, uh, when things don't go to plan. Yeah.
0: And you said this, which I love, spirit leads mind, mind leads body. So how did this Olympic spirit that was ignited in that moment shape your mind to become so powerful?
1: That's, you know, that's one of the, the I guess, the ethos of, of how I think is that spirit leads mind, mind leads body. And we always think that it's the other way around. You know, it's uh, the Olympics isn't about body. It's not about being this physical, you know, being a physical specimen in any sport, but first and foremost, having a will that comes from somewhere which we can't define. How does that come in? And you yourself would know. There's it, it just it lands inside your head somehow, and you 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 can't shake it. So yeah, it starts with the spirit, and then it's the mind, right? The Olympian wakes up at whatever time of the morning when no one's watching, when there is no media, when there is. Even when there is no event. And that's your mind in the morning telling you to get out of bed. It's not your body. Your body wants to stay in bed, right? Geez, that blanket feels good, Super right? That pillow right up,
0: now. Yeah. That
1: pillow is at the right spot for my head to stay here another three <laughs> hours. Why would I go and exert myself to a point of stress? So the spirit dictates to the mind where it is that we where is our ultimate purpose. And that's probably why. I have a theory that no level of depression or anxiety or sadness is ever cured by sitting on a couch, right? The answer doesn't land on your lap in nothingness. The answer lands within you in doing. When you engage with life, is when those when that goodness comes to you. You'll still be sitting on the couch 20 years later waiting for the, you know, waiting for the, the happiness. To- to land on your lap if, if that's the case. So um, I don't know if I answered the question, but that was I just wanted to give a bit of my thought process around the spirit, uh, mind, and body.
0: No, I love that. And I think you really took this to heart early on because you engaged with life even when it wasn't giving you a whole lot back. Like, as you said, you were the smallest kid in your grade and you went to rugby training every time for four years and you weren't played once. And instead you handed oranges to the boys. So you were there ready for that opportunity. But Why did you understand the value of perseverance at such a young age?
1: This goes back to what my mother told me, right? That's how strong the belief was ingrained in my head. You can achieve anything that you believe you can achieve. Perseverance, I believe it's taught. I don't believe that it's ingrained. I mean, if you can fail at something, Yet you find you're still in a safe place after that failure. You have a much higher threshold for perseverance to then go forward and try again. I think where a lot of people fall down is they'll fail at something, which, uh, you know, as you would know, is part of the, the, the steps. It's you a gift. cannot become an Olympian. It's a gift, right? Yeah. You, you don't become an Olympian without failing many times at many things. But if you're in a safe place, or for the parents out there who have kids, the idea of of giving a safe environment to fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and see how we're slowly moving up through the failures, that allows people to keep on going. But if someone fails at something, then all of a sudden, they get smacked down with, oh, don't do that. We don't want to see you hurt, right? That's kind of like a passive aggressive way of of saying, you're not going to achieve it. We don't, we don't want to see you hurt. Why don't you just go and do this? But I don't want to do that because something in my heart is pulling me towards, towards that. Every time I failed, I was, I was in a safe place and my parents said, let's try it again. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. In fact, even up to this day, I was when I went to the World Kayaking Tournament, two weeks after starting kayaking, you know, for a world Championship, and 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 the silly thing was was that I went and announced it to the world on what was it Today's Show over in New York, right? So everyone's like, oh, look, the flag bearers is going kayaking. <laughs> Two weeks after starting a sport, you shouldn't be at a world championship. <laughs> yeah. But I had <laughs> failed so many times in my life that I just didn't care what other people thought of my failure because I knew that it was a stepping stone to to success. But more importantly, I knew that if I go to a world championship as my first event, it can only get better from there, right? so, yeah, so you, true. You, if you're still alive after you've been thrown into the lions then, you'll have no more fear of the lions, you're right? You're good to go, yeah. You're, you're good to go. So I guess for people listening, if I'm to, if I'm to give them something, listen to the coach inside you that says keep going more than what everyone else is saying in fact turn off what everyone else is saying Lila after that event my brother calls me from he's over in London he, he calls me up and he goes oh that was a little bit embarrassing I was like well for those who don't know I end up at the starting line I'll just quickly go through that I end up at the starting line I'm at the world championship. I'm with the world champion. He's alongside. And then my boat starts drifting, starts drifting out of the starting block. There's a YouTube video on it, unfortunately. Check it out. (laughs) Check it out. And then I went around and I had to paddle back around. Everyone's waiting for me in their starting lane. I then come back in and the exact same thing happens. I start drifting. And they didn't want to wait for me anymore because they couldn't. They go on your marks, get set. And as soon as they said go, I was facing the audience instead of facing the finish line. And the the kayak is super, it's very tippy. It's so hard to stay balanced. And, And they had given me a fishing kayak because they knew I would have probably fallen in. And anyway everyone takes off they get to the finish line they go home they go to their family they have coffee they sleep for a week and then i finally cross the finish line <laughs> right so i'm i'm crossing like four times they did it in 34 seconds i was like two minutes or something
0: nice
1: so four times i get across to the finish line and i said okay i'm just going to paddle i'm just going to quietly paddle back to the dock i'm just going just going hide for a little bit and I'm they're paddling and I hear over the loudspeaker. This is the world championships in Hungary, by the way. Lane eight to lane eight to media. I was like, why would they want to interview the guy who came last? Why, well, what is this sadistic kind of kind of leave him alone, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, okay. But you have to you have to go yeah. because it's in you know, front of the requirement. So I, I go, I get to the dock, I'm still shaking, my hands are shaking from all the adrenaline of my first race. And there's a camera in my face, BBC, well, Peter, you must feel devastated. Peter, that didn't go to plan. You must feel devastated. And, and I get it a lot because I get devastated a lot in terms of my, my performance. <laughs> but um, but, but I, look at, I look at them and I say, on the contrary, I couldn't be happier. And they said, uh, what do you mean you came, you came last? I said, yes but I've got a national record. And they said said to me, they said, but no one from Tonga has ever competed in a kayaking tournament. I said, yes. And that's why I've got the national record. (laughs) And on top of that, I also made a PB. They said, Peter, you've never raced before. I said, that's why I got a PB. It can only get better from here.
0: (laughs) There you go. That is the outlook we all need in life. That is brilliant.
1: But that's you know, that's something that's trained and and as I was mentioning before, the gift or the gift. (laughs) I'm not a giver of gifts. I'm not Santa Claus. (laughs) But if there was something I would impart on people, it's reframe everything the way that you want it framed. It's not a devastating event. Had I been devastated in that moment, I know what the headline would have said. Tongan flag bearer comes last, absolutely devastated. Right, that doesn't help me in the future. No way. <laughs> Instead, tongue and Flag Vera comes last, couldn't be happier. Frame everything, good or bad, the way that you want it framed. and uh, and people will people will move to that energy. Yeah, rather than you taking on their energy of devastation and et cetera.
0: It's similar to what you were talking about with with Rachel, where you set the tone. You stand in your power and the energy that you want to put out there. And then you define your reality as a result and also the reality of so many people around you.
1: A hundred percent. Yes.
0: And so let's talk about the road to Rio because it was certainly an interesting one to say the least. And I'll just <laughs> explain to my listeners that every four years there's one shot at the Olympics with the qualifying tournament where you need to be number one in Oceania to qualify for Tonga. And I'll just run through the signposts on this road. Your first attempt in 2004, Athens, ended before it started because you couldn't afford the trip to Thailand. 2008, you left your qualifier with a silver instead of a gold, not to mention you were in a wheelchair, unable to walk for six months. Ahead of London 2012, you went to one qualifier at the World Champs in Azerbaijan, and then there you tore your knee ligament, Which is usually a six month long injury yet you still showed up at the oceania qualifier eight weeks later fighting on one leg made it all the way to the finals but left on crutches unable to walk for another three months and then you punched your ticket to rio in 2016 Papua new guinea and i mean you made it and i can't even imagine what that felt like but how did the feeling of qualifying differ from what you had imagined in all of those years leading up to that point?
1: It's, you learn lessons along the way. I learned in, you know, 2004, I didn't have the funds. 2008, I was a little bit upset after that event because it was, I was so certain that I was going to be an Olympian and then I ended up not being able to walk. And the reason I couldn't walk was because I fractured a bone and I sprained my ankle. So they couldn't cast the bone. They couldn't put a cast on because I still had swelling from the ankle and so on. I'm I'm now stuck in bed and we all know that physical activity is a way to make your mood better. But when you're stuck in bed, you just missed out on your dream. You can't walk. Like it's very tough. So I went, I went into the cave. Then I went into the, I went into the dragons then. And I went to battle with my, you know, I went to battle with the dragons that were, that was, you know, the ones that would say you're not good enough or try to say that. And I came out on top. Right, I came out on top, and I and you know I slayed that dragon. And I said, I said, never again in my life am I going to be upset at anything for longer than a day. I want to give myself a day. That's that's enough. I, it took me months in two thousand and eight. I was still feeling down. I wasn't feeling so happy. Dream taken away from me, etc. How
0: how did you slay that dragon?
1: I had the tools. I had been working, and I had been working in, in the homeless shelters. I I had learned a lot of a lot of the psychological tricks, I guess. I mean, first and foremost, I had to make sure my spirit was strong. I'm a Christian, so I, I said my prayers. But God doesn't answer your prayers unless you, unless you go to work as well. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say, okay, you're good now. He says, you're good now if you go and make yourself good now, right? You lead a horse to water. <laughs> I said, Okay, so I had, I had these tools. My mother had always said, you can achieve anything so when i went to when the dragon was telling me you're never going to be an olympian you should just you should just go and do something else right and when i say dragon what i mean is the voices inside our head that want to keep us normal and and, and average and not achieve our goals but 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 we'll, maybe we'll be safe right maybe we'll be able to have a nice lounge room where we can sit in and and deep in our heart we're longing for something else so I went in with the tools of every time the dragon showed its head, rather than cowering to it, like, this is a mental exercise that I taught some of the kids in the in the homeless homelessness. And I called it the rabid, I actually call it the rabid dog. I had to change that name because it turns out people love dogs. We all love dogs. So it then became the rabid wolf. Uh, but wolves are a beautiful animal, so I'm calling it the dragon these okay. days. So every time, every time it would stick its head in. And say, Peter, you're not good enough. Why don't you just give up? Rather than cowering and listening and reaffirming the negative message. Oh, yes, you know what? I'm not good enough. Yeah, I'll I'll just go and do that. And cowering to the fear. Every time it came in, I turned to it. And I I use the analogy of tapping it on the head. Tapping it on the head, which is facing it, right? I'd face the dragon. And I'd be like, I am this is just you know this is i I guess a bit of bravado as well i am the greatest i'm the strongest i will da da, da, i'm going to be an olympian and i would yell at it and and sometimes my at that time my mother was living upstairs and she could she could hear me i am i am i the i am statement right and then eventually it would it would be quiet because the the dragon can't talk when you're talking loud
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah, so you just have and to scream.
1: You scream, and sometimes you scream in your head. And then every time it did it, every time it comes in, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let it take any of my time. I wouldn't sit there in that moment. I'd go, I'd go at it straight away. Anytime it came in, I'd go at it straight away. And I did that for months. Laying in bed with broken foot. I just went at this dragon. And eventually his voice got quieter and quieter and my inner voice got louder and louder and louder. And still to this day, I don't stay in that space for longer than a day. We then go on four years later, 2012, exact same thing happened to me. End up with silver. I end up on crutches because my knee, you know, as you said, it takes six months. I then fight, I make it to the final fight in the final. I'm winning. The guy realizes I'm only using one leg, and then changes everything up, and then he beats me. And now I now have to wait another four years. Coach said, "You know what? You know maybe maybe we just have a little rest now, and I'll, I'll give you your space." I said, "Coach, I've already fought the dragon. You know this is a, this is that same hour after I lost my dream again. Let's go and have a good dinner, right? Let's go and." Don't have a good we went for dinner that night and the guy that the guy that ended up beating me he's there at dinner so we all sat at the table together and he gets he gets to go to the Olympics I get to stay home and wait another four years but it didn't matter it didn't matter because I had learned the lesson I learned the lesson that you know not to feel bad when these things happen to attack that dragon when it tries to attack you not to be subservient to it and appease it in case it burns you a little bit with its fire breath. <laughs> like, no, no, no. You can burn me, but I'm not going to to sit in this corner and let you, let you burn me. Go on four years later, 2016, nothing. You know, if, it, if my own dragons can't beat me, no man is going to stand in front of me and beat me at that time. And that's the same thing that everyone watching and listening has. We all have our dragons. We all have the things inside us which are trying to keep us from something. When you beat them, nothing in this world can, can beat you. Nothing will take you down mentally. Nothing will make you feel, you know, one day, one day my family members will pass away. That's okay. God's plan. One day I'll pass away. That's okay. God's plan. One day one of us will get sick. That's okay. You know, that's, that's how life happens. And when you remove all the fear of all of this stuff, All of a sudden, the BBC camera in your face saying you you must feel devastated is like, that's like a walk in the park, right?
0: Yeah. That's going to help so many people. Thank you for sharing that tool. It's so empowering to know that it's up to you and it's all about the volume of your inner voice and what you decide to tell yourself.
1: When people realize the answers that they seek are all within them, they don't have to wait for happiness. I, I get The question all the time, Lila. I get this question Peter, I'm just trying to find myself. Can you help me find myself? I say, You're not lost. You're not lost. You've told yourself so many times that you're lost and that you need to find yourself. But I'm telling you now, you're not lost. The answers to your happiness are already inside you. Stop trying to find yourself, create the self that you want to be life has created you a certain way life has created all of us with through experiences good and bad and a little bit of genetics there's a little bit of genetics in there as well has created the person that you are is that the person that you wanted to be that's a byproduct of what life has you're not lost sometimes we want to be lost it's easier to blame something else isn't it sometimes it's i don't want to feel bad about myself How about I say it's because of this condition? How about I say it's because of my parent or or this person or my ex or my financial situation? Right? It's easier to blame someone else. Face your dragon.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And then everything else is easy.
0: You're listening to The Lila Joe Show. So we do have to talk about the opening ceremonies. Unfortunately, I'm sure every interview has included this. But it's a night that changed your life forever and, and gave you this wonderful platform to share everything that you're sharing from this conversation to all the other ones you're having. And legend has it that the Olympic officials said that you had to wear a suit. But you packed a traditional Tongan Tapa cloth in your backpack. You hid and changed put on some coconut oil and walked out there and we all know what happened next so my question is what was your intention in this outfit change knowing about the global exposure that you were walking into
1: yes yeah, so, uh, so just to clarify and when I when I say it back I I, I say officials I don't I don't really say Olympic I, I say officials because I don't want to kind of pinpoint the exact people because now we're all <laughs> everyone's all friends now right
0: yeah so let's clarify but, um,
1: let, let's go let's just say official my my thought process was i wanted to represent culture of hundreds and hundreds of years not culture that had been dictated to us since the 1920s or 1930s whereby we have to wear a suit and a tie and, and i enjoy wearing a suit and a tie in its moment right where where I should be wearing a suit and tie. But if I'm about to carry a flag of a country in an international arena, I want to represent what that country has been, the history of that country. And to me, it wasn't that big a deal. We dress up like that for traditional events. We cover ourselves in oil, we, cover, we wear a, a tapa or a ta'ovala or, a, or different, different items and cover ourselves in oil. So it wasn't a big deal. I thought everyone's been to the Pacific, right, or somewhere in the Pacific. Turns out that's not the case. Turns out uh, people saw that, and it was uh, it was a it was a big deal for I guess the media, you know, ran with it and and enjoyed it. At, at that time, I didn't understand. I didn't know. So I didn't even have a Twitter account, right? I, social media was just kind of like a, a way to talk to friends. It wasn't about like fame. Fame doesn't mean any. Honestly, fame means nothing to me other than a platform to reach more people. What it was was about a statement of of native cultures, if that makes sense. Of so let let us native cultures, original co- cultures, have our have our say. Let us be seen um, as being people rather than us just always trying to follow right? Always trying to follow some sort of central, this is how you should look. And so yes, I walked out and uh, yeah, the rest is history, right? The rest <laughs> is
0: history. No, I, I so understand that. And for anyone who doesn't know, PETA went viral with his opening ceremony moment. And you said that you were 100% not prepared for what was coming your way. And if you could go back and relive those two weeks, you would have done everything different. So what is something that you did that you shouldn't have done?
1: <laughs> when I say I would have done things differently, what I meant was in regards to, I guess, the probably the business and the commercial aspect of it. I didn't have a manager, I didn't have an agent, I didn't have, I didn't even know what these things were. You know, what's an what's an agent do, right? What's a manager? What a what's a publicist? And I'm like, whoa because all of a sudden you have all this stuff and then you also get all these offers. Uh, Every talk show you can think of and every endorsement you can think of. And I was ill-prepared at that time to completely capitalize on it, but I don't take any of it back, right? I I don't look back and I don't regret that I wasn't ready because I wasn't meant to be ready. If I was ready for all the, I guess, the commercial and the business aspects of that, and that would have said that I wouldn't have, I, I was doing it for that, yes. right? Yes. The, the, the fact that I wasn't ready, I was there for, I was there to make a statement, you know, from a cultural perspective and tick that box. I, I did that. And then I learned all the other stuff along the way, right? I learned all the, now I've got a manager who's who's like, um, he's, he's a grandchild of the founder of NBC studios and. And our worlds collided in, in, in that regards. But in terms of what I have done differently, the outfit? Uh, absolutely not. That was, you know, part of being an Olympian, as you would know, is being stubborn. When I say stubborn, I mean not being so easily swayed by other opinion.
0: Well, that's so true. And I mean, what you did after the Olympics is a testament to that belief. Because instead of sitting back and letting all of these offers and partnerships come to you, you had a plan. You had a seed planted that you wanted to be the first summer winter Olympian from Tonga, qualifying in a new sport that made no sense in under a year. When was this idea born and why?
1: I'd like to say that I was drunk because when I think (laughs) back on it, when I think back on, on what I did in that year, it was one of the toughest years of my life. So I had, I had a lot of offers, and things that people see is this small. The things people don't see is everything. And the television shows that I had turned down as well. I had so many people, you shouldn't have turned that down. You should have done this. And basically every reality TV show was, was like, that's just a baseline. Then there was documentaries. Then there was a couple of movies and I was, and I said to myself, I'm not done yet. That stuff will always be there. There was a very, very famous talk show and we had some negotiation and eventually I turned it down. And they said, that opportunity will never come up to you again. I said, with that mindset, opportunity will never come up to you again. I said, I create opportunity. We, all of us can create opportunity if we continue to do the work that we've been pulled towards to do. And guess what? It's five years since, right? I'm, I'm still here getting opportunities left, right, and center, because I was able to turn down opportunities. And and this is and, and for the viewers listening, take a stand for the things that you believe in in life. Don't fall for the don't fall for the hype. Don't fall for the you know the quick cash, uh, all these sorts of things. Back to answering your question, cross country skiing makes absolutely no sense. I'm hundred kilograms. The average cross-country skier is six, you know, to sixty, maybe seventy kilograms. You have to be light to move far and fast. And I thought, if I can somehow make it at Winter Olympic Games, then for my own personal mentality, that would really—if I didn't, I'd still be happy—but that would really cement in a few things in my in my head, right? That the impossible actually is, if someone's done it. If Lila's done it, if Peter's done it, if Usain Bolt's done it, then anyone watching or listening to this can achieve some level of it. If they put their hearts and minds to to it. So I went and I qualified for cross-country skiing in under a year. And people say, oh, but you must be easy to qualify to be the best in Tonga. And I'm like, there's an Olympic qualification process. We have to meet an Olympic standard. And that standard is really, really difficult, right? It's very difficult. I went on and um, I went with athletes from other exotic countries. And we, we went on this adventure, which is going to be a movie at, at some stage. You had a few offers for this. Um, but it was, just, it was just such a beautiful, uh, beautiful moment where we, we went around the world trying to go to every qualification tournament that we could. To try and qualify for the olympics and i ended up qualifying on the last race of the last day the last day of qualification period over in iceland not just in iceland in the northern fjords of iceland it was so hard to get to in the snowstorm and middle of winter this is the arctic circle right and and eventually got there and eventually um qualified on my final race of 15 races so when i talk about these races Imagine a one-hour-long race and missing out on a qualification by 15 seconds. You're in a race for an hour, and had you been 15 seconds faster, you would have qualified. That's what they were all like up until this last race where I finally, uh, finally was able to qualify and make the Olympics.
0: So this story, I'm so happy that it's going to be a movie because it is absolutely riveting and and unbelievable. And just doing my research and telling my entire family and anyone that would listen about this story, they were all just gobsmacked. So if you could humor me, could we go to the Istanbul airport after the plane yes. door was closed? <laughs> so you just taken your eight hour taxi ride, plane doors close. That's your one shot to get to the last race.
1: I was there with um, Yona from Chile and, and her from Mexico. And we were actually we were actually in Armenia at the time. We said, okay, which country are we going to go to? Which race is going to be better suited towards, um, you know, which course is going to be a little better suited? So we chose Armenia. That was the wrong point. <laughs> One of the second worst race of my life. I get to Armenia. we had come from a low country in terms of elevation. Get to Armenia, it's like, 2,800 meters above sea level and raced the same day that we arrived and I tanked my lungs just went out and I got across the finish line I I wasn't even close to qualifying and Jonah comes up to me and he goes oh bad race you should have gone to Croatia right the Croatia race was a shorter race and I'm I I was better built for the you know short short finish yeah (laughs) (laughs) A <laughs> hundred kilograms around a 15 kilometer track. Never good. <laughs> and I'm laying there up in the mountains of Armenia, feeling like absolute crap. And he comes up to me and he says, you should have gone to Croatia. And, and in my head, it goes tick, 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 tick. Croatia. When's Croatia? Tomorrow morning. We had chosen one or the other. So I was like, okay, I need to go to Croatia. We're in Armenia. I didn't find out that the only flights to Croatia were from Turkey. Turns out the Turkey-Armenia border has been shut since the 90s. So I'm finding all this stuff up. I got to be in Croatia in the morning. Guys, help, help me. Help me get to Croatia. And so we're calling every airline that you can think of. mind's on the phone constantly. We're asking people. They said, there's no flight out of Armenia. You have to actually get to Georgia. I said, how am I going to get to Georgia? It's six o'clock at night. I got to be at a race at seven in the morning. If you can get to Georgia, you get, there's a flight at this time. Then you fly out to Istanbul and then to Croatia. I said, guys, can you make sure that there's a a taxi waiting in Croatia? I then call a taxi and take an eight hour hour ride through Armenia to Georgia, get straight on a flight. I, I land in Istanbul. I'm running, you know, I'm about to miss this flight. I'm running. I run through the security. My mindset was a little bit crazy at this time. Just get just get there. Running through security. Everyone's swearing at me because they're all lining up. And I'm just like, got to go. They're all like swearing. The security's like, no, no, no. And I was like, sir, sir, sir. Right? And I just kept going. I then get to the, to the gate. I get to the gate and I look up at the clock as I'm running. I'm like, oh, no. And the lady is walking up the aero bridge gate. They'd shut the door and I'm there pressing all the buttons on the, oh, I'm I'm now a security threat, right? Because I'm pressing all the buttons to open the door to to get onto the airplane. I I didn't, didn't know the code. I was just a little bit crazy at that time that I was I thought I could guess. And and the lady comes up and she goes, sir, you cannot get on this plane. I said, I got to get on this plane. It's my last chance to be an Olympian. He said, sir, once once the door's shut, international protocol, can't get on the plane. I go and I sit there at the airport in Istanbul. And there's actually a photo I put up because I was now stuck at Istanbul with no money because I'd used every dollar I had to go to 15 races in how many countries. I go, guys, stuck at Istanbul, gave it everything. My brother sends me a text message. I've got some air points. I said, Croatia was my last chance. He goes, I got some air points. And then he gets me over to, uh, missed the Croatia one. I then end up going to Iceland and I land there and there's a, there's a
0: storm. Yes. So it was, oh, uh
1: the, the storm in itself is another story. But yeah, it was, I, I don't even know how I, how I got there.
0: So after three avalanches get in the way and it takes you three days to drive there, and you can see max two meters ahead of you because of the snow, you hike and end up at the track to realize that the snow is soft. But you have one pair of skis suited for icy conditions. So I just really want to highlight this moment with the driver of the snowplow because this changed your qualification fate. So (laughs) tell me about this conversation and how human connection in this moment helped you to qualify.
1: All of this is about human connection. Yeah. And 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 when I, and, and I'll, I'll bring back probably my greatest lesson from all of this, all of these stories at the end of, of this story. So we drove for three days um, and we end up, you know, the avalanches had actually gone across the road. We saw them and we're talking, there's no one there for 300 kilometers. You're driving and it's just. The snowstorm meant that we couldn't fly from Reykjavik in Iceland to Islia Fjord. There's a little airport. So we had to drive and um, and it took us three days. We get there, and I said to the boys, I said, it's 20 kilometers to hike, but we've got to make it to this race. And if we if we get to this avalanche and we can't, the car can't go through, we're going to hike it. And by the time, it was actually quite funny. By the time we, we got to 20 kilometers out, a uh, snow plow had come through just before. We saw it in the distance. It had pushed, it cleared the avalanche and cleared the road. And there's no houses here. We're talking 300 kilometers before the next little village, and you're in the middle of nowhere. So it's now on 10 o'clock at night. The last race for the Olympic qualification is tomorrow morning. 10 o'clock at night. Everyone's tired. We're we're worn out from the last two months, let alone the last three days of driving. And uh, we go, we've got to go and run the track. I have one pair of skis. The ski companies, even though I'm already an athlete, they look down on uh, us exotics, right? I don't want to go into names, but some of the the messages that we received, uh, we don't want him in our skis. Because, they, you know, they, they knew I'm new to skiing. They, they don't want to be seen. And I, and I tend to get a bit of the, a bit of the media coverage. They don't, they don't want their skis to be seen in, in the coming last or second last or third last. They want their skis seen in the top guys, right? So I had one pair of skis for ice. We get there 10 o'clock at night. We have to run the track. I, I get out and the snow is soft from the snowstorm. And I went, oh, no, these skis are only good for ice. It's still so soft. And we see this snowplow coming around. It's dark. It's Arctic Circle. And I stand there and I wave the guy down. He gets out. He's a little bit uh, overweight. The fish, all the, all the fish that he's been eating keeps him warm, right? The guy's staying warm. He gets out and I looked at him and I said, Sir, as bigger guys, we got to stand together. He goes, yes. <laughs> Deep Icelandic accent. I said, is there any way that by tomorrow morning you can have this track up to world-class standard? I know that you can do it. Is there any way that you can do it? He looks at me and he says one sentence. He said, I'll see what I can do. Gets back in his snowplow. Drives off. We come back the next morning. Every other 15 races, every other condition I went in was not suited to that pair of skis. Mind you, every other professional athlete has probably 15, 20 pairs of skis. Cold snow, hot snow, wet snow, dry snow. I had one pair. I put the skis on. I step out hard as ice. The skis are just, I'm like, I've never felt them move that quick. All the other conditions were never set for that why is it the last race of the last day? Everything is, is just perfect. And I thought, well, that's, that's the gift that the big man upstairs gives us. We push through to the last moment when everything is going wrong is just before everything goes right. People stop when things start to go wrong. Oh, I didn't make this race. Oh, maybe it's not for me, right? I'm like, it's not going right I have to keep going. And eventually, so I was gifted with ice conditions for that day. So back to human connection, right? Had I not said that to the guy, would it have been that compact? Would he have gone around 10 times instead of five times? I don't know. I like to believe that I had some influence. Or maybe that was just his standard. I'll never know. But I put on that pair of skis, and that was the first race I felt I deserved to be there. And Laila, guess what number I I was wearing on my bib? What number? Same number of the worst race I had ever, ever been in, which was a race in Poland, number
0: 13. Oh.
1: The unlucky number.
0: Interesting.
1: Right? So when people say, oh, that's unlucky or this or that, I'm like, that was my worst race and my Olympic qualifying race. It's not luck, it's all in your head.
0: <laughs> it's those dragons. It's getting it's over those dragons.
1: dragons. They're so used to throwing their fire at you that if you just keep standing there, they run out of fire.
0: <laughs> that story is just unbelievable, Pita, and I'm just I'm sensing so many themes in your stories and I'll just briefly talk about Tokyo and then ask this question, but you wanted to qualify for a third consecutive Olympics in a new sport sprint kayaking we're not going to go for taekwondo we're going to pick a new sport why not so unfortunately you didn't qualify but you did qualify in taekwondo and even went so far as to bring your paddle to tokyo in hopes that you'd be allowed to jump in a spare lane and race anyways and so my question is what you are in pursuit of in your life seems to be how far can we as human beings push ourselves to achieve something And you also have your religion and and this strong faith and belief that God has a plan for you to follow, right? So where do you draw the line between turning all these no's into a yes and making things happen, but also trusting that things are going to happen according to a larger plan?
1: Things will happen according to a larger plan, whether we plan or not. I was asked this question quite recently, and the question was, when do we give up? When do we just say, you know what, I'm this year's old or I'm, I've, am i you know, my time for that has passed and etc." And the answer I, uh, I gave is probably what this is all about to me. I said, we're getting so stuck on the goal, what we think the goal is. The first time to make the Olympics, that was my, you know, that was a goal to to become an Olympian. It's with you for life, right? It's a great honor. But I said, the lessons that I learned and and the lessons that I learned from qualifying in, in in the skiing was that my greatest lesson is that it's not about the goal. I said, we're so caught up on achieving our goal and we tie in our happiness to achieving or not achieving the goal. But what if, what if our plan isn't exactly the master plan, right? Do we then say we're not going to be happy for the rest of our life because we didn't achieve that goal? No, I wrote in my book, for those who have read my book or not read my book, The Motivation Station, I'll, I'll go straight to the last paragraph, right? I'll save you $10 at Amazon.
0: <laughs> but still read the book.
1: Still read the book, you know, it's, I, I'd rather people get the information. And, and I said, I, my whole life, I thought that the goal was about achieving something. What I learned was that the person that we become in trying to achieve the goal, the experiences that we share, Iceland and adventure and and snowstorms, and the people that we meet. I now have brothers for life and and family for life through this Olympic journey. These, to me, are the true goals because they're with us for life, our experiences. The person that we become, My happiness is no longer tied to whether I won or I lost, or I got a medal, or I didn't get a medal, or I qualified, or I didn't qualify. My happiness isn't tied to that. People listening, rethink what a goal actually means to you and realize that your happiness isn't tied to your achievement or non-achievement of it.
0: Such a great lesson. And- Another goal was Beijing, which unfortunately did not happen. It would have been great to see you there at my first Olympics, but (laughs) hopefully in Milan. But you wrote on Instagram, you announced that you would not be competing and you wrote, right now I have another task that calls me. I must answer. But make no mistake. My sword is sharp and my mind is ready. I am just getting started. We have something up our sleeve, an idea, a feat, a dream. It lives next to the impossible, a place that excites me. What is it?
1: <laughs> I won't say what it is exactly, what I will say is that it involves uh, it involves the Olympics. Okay. Every time is a, every time is a step further trying to push myself to a new level. I will say that I've never medalled at the Olympics and that's still a goal, right? I, you know, I'm still, I'm still pushing, but most certainly it lives next to the impossible, and I say it, tongue in cheek a little bit, but it's all to try and help people, not be so scared of their, impossible. Oh my
0: gosh! So mysterious, but so exciting.
1: None of it means anything to me if, if other people who are, who are watching or listening or following, you know, I guess the journey. If they don't get some value from it or from my constant failures or the, or the, or the misadventures or continually trying, that's, that's my prize, right? I want people to slay their dragons. And if my misadventures helps them get there, then that's my prize.
0: And along with this exciting feat and your, your dream of having an Olympic medal, one of your biggest dreams is to create an Olympic training center For youth in Tonga so that they'll have free access to training. And I just think this is so wonderful and, and such a fantastic gift to give these kids. And if you were to create a huge mural covering one of the walls in this training center to encourage the kids every day that they're in there, what words would be on that wall or what image would you put there?
1: So one of my one of my favorite biblical verses is if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And what that means is is that you don't need to have everything in life. All you need is faith, the size of a mustard seed that you can achieve what you want to achieve. And mountains will move for the person that has this Mm.
0: Do you have to foster that faith?
1: First of all, you have to believe it. It's easy for me to qualify for an Olympics now because I have so much belief that it can be done, not because I'm actually physically better, right, just mentally. But the person who's watching who hasn't qualified for an Olympics or who hasn't gotten that job or gotten that partner or gotten that salary, they don't have to go through the pain. All they have to do is learn from the people, learn the lesson. From the people who have
0: yeah.
1: it's easier if you've I mean once you've gone through it you kind of get it it's kind of ingrained but if you're on a short circuit all of that read nonstop I have earphones in my in my ears probably six hours a day listening to people on sports and on mindset and on wealth creation and on business and on philanthropy and on all these things right? constant constant learning so Foster the faith, believe that it's possible. Why do, why do I say believe it's possible? Because if anyone else has done it, you can do it. Maybe there's some physical limitations. Maybe, maybe if you're 97 and you're two foot three, then you're not going to be a basketball player at the Olympics. But don't tie, don't tie in your happiness to it. <laughs> but, you know. but other than that, I believe it's about belief. And if you haven't gone through the, the perils of attaining that yourself, Look at others who have.
0: You're listening to The Lila Joe Show. Our workout is done and we're going to do a quick cool down now, Peta.
1: I don't know. I hope I said something good in that time.
0: <laughs> I have like 5 million more questions as well. And I just feel so inspired and so excited and, yeah, ready to slay those dragons. <laughs> What's next? What else do I think is impossible, right?
1: A hundred percent. And what I will say is that that's where your happiness lies, in the pursuit of the goal, not in the goal.
0: Yeah, I agree. I so agree. Okay, cool down. What sport is next on the list, Peter?
1: I, I still have unfinished business in uh, in kayaking. I didn't make that. I wasn't the first person to qualify in three unrelated sports. So, most certainly, I will be in a uh, in a kayak, and I just love the sport as well. Sprint kayak.
0: And then, what about ice dance? Come on.
1: <laughs> see how I still have ten. See how I still have ten fingers.
0: Yeah. You want to? <laughs> I want to keep it. Okay, I want to
1: keep it that way. <laughs>
0: Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: I've seen what you do. I'm like, oh, yeah. There's impossible and there's beyond impossible.
0: Oh, stop, stop. stop. (laughs) And Peter, you you mentioned a few quotes. I am an avid quote collector. Do you have another favorite quote that you can share?
1: There is a quote. It's it's probably it's the, the title of a of a book, but it's used in the book as well. And it goes along the lines of as a man thinketh, so shall he become. And it goes back to the exact same thing. It's from the book As a Man Thinketh.
0: What is your favorite meal on Earth?
1: No Raw seafood. OK. Raw fish, uh, oysters, mussels, uh, anything out of the sea that's raw. It, it, it brings me back to my primal, my primal roots. <laughs>
0: Amazing. What is a non-negotiable in your life?
1: Uh, faith and family.:
0: Amazing. And last question, what is your number one book recommendation?
1: I I would have to go back to as a man thinker. And the reason I say it's it's my number one is because it's also short. Okay. It's not a long book. You don't have to you don't have to go through all of it to, you know, to to get the lesson. And uh, number two, not that you're asking for, it, is my book. The motivation I'll take station.
0: It. Motivation yeah, station. <laughs>
1: Uh, I, a lot of these uh, stories are in that are in that
0: book. So. so, Peter, these recommendations will get put to good use because on my show, I have a tradition where I give my guest the book that was recommended by my previous guest. Uh, yeah. So you have a book from Monica de la Villardiere, who is, I don't know if you know the show Emily in Paris, but she is the real life Emily in Paris. And we had such an interesting conversation and she recommended to you... The White Album by Joan Didion. And as a storyteller yourself, I think you'll love the first sentence, which is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. So I'm going to be sending that to you wherever you are in the world. And I want to thank you so much for your generosity of time and spirit and just the enthusiasm in what you do and the, the mission that you're on. And thank you so much for being on my show.
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. And I just, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to get these shows out to, to people. And I'm uh, looking forward to seeing, looking forward to seeing your, your show grow. And um, I just, yeah, it's an honor.
0: Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode. For more on the show, you can check out my Instagram at the Lila Joe Show. And if you haven't yet, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review my show. Join me next time for a new episode. And in the meantime, have the best day.